Super Talk Mississippi media production. Did you know Toyota Brookhaven has sold more new vehicles the last two years than any other dealership in southwest Mississippi? Come see why. Exit 40 Brookhaven or online at toyotabrookhaven.com. Great service, great savings. At Toyota Brookhaven, we deliver. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbard, along with Rhino in the Element Well Studio, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music. It is this Hump Day. <laughs> yes, it is Valentine's Day, Hump Day, day after Mardi Gras, Ash Wednesday. It's a bunch going on today. <laughs> All crammed into one. All crammed into one day. The weather is delightful, however, is it not? We have, have been deserving a little of this sunshine, uneventful weather for sure. It rained a whole lot over the weekend across much of Mississippi. It feels like because it got so chilly last night, it kind of took the top out of the high today for some reason. Like it. It got down in the 30s in central Mississippi last night. But sure did. The high today is going to be 60s. Yeah. And sunny. It sure did. Clouds. So, but we are here ready to get going. Kathy Northington, woman of impact with the American Heart Association, will join us at 11.05. And then looking forward to a conversation with Robert Enloe. President and CEO of Ed Choice. You can guess what we're going to be discussing there. School choice, education freedom in the state of Mississippi being considered by our legislature. You've heard many members on the program and on Mr. Gallo's program discussing that possibility. We'll see where that goes. So I'm looking forward to that that conversation for sure. So I I got to share something uh, with you that I guess I, I think to some extent kind of unfortunately exemplifies just the uh, decline in society in this uh, in this country. Washington D.C., the nation's capital. This was uh, an event that I believe occurred early this morning. Police officers, three of them, injured this morning by a suspect uh, in an active shooting event. You got schools in the area in Washington, D.C. were on lockdown, barricaded the roads, etc. I don't know why that just struck me as this shouldn't be happening in America. Maybe I'm idealistic to think that people just will act right and not run around playing shoot 'em up. But to a great extent, though, I believe 
I really do, that this is driven by the rhetoric coming from the left in this country. It, it all goes back to the defund the police and reconstruct and reimagine. And let's send social workers out to deal with these people brandishing guns and firing upon law enforcement officers, often with impunity. Okay, we arrest them, and then these woke DAs won't prosecute them. Next thing you know, they're out on the streets. We saw illegals, young illegals, 20-something illegals, brutally attacking a police officer in New York, arrested, then released, then shooting the bird, flipping the bird at the entire country, and then enjoying... Housing and transportation, courtesy of the American taxpayer. Again, with impunity, it seems. This really does, I think, unfortunately, sadly, tragically, epitomize the left's agenda for this country. And it, uh, it includes the justification of criminal act, essentially decriminalizing crime and demonizing those who speak out against it. Free speech has been considered demonic, and now it is uh, considered violent. You used the wrong pronoun. You misgendered me. That kind of garbage. But yet, you got these fools running around firing upon police officers, injuring them. We're lucky we have anybody, honestly, that will wear the uniform and protect law-abiding citizens, essentially, in this country. They've all, last I saw, were transported to a hospital, undergoing treatment, roads closed all over the place. Am I the only one that thinks that this is, I don't know, particularly concerning because it's the nation's capital? And I guess the reason I say that is the many in the rest of the world look upon us and say they can't even keep their own dang capital safe. It just seems like there's an excess of crime in our own nation's capital. Oh, but we had to write... And, you know, eight-foot-high yellow letters out there on a road, Black Lives Matter. Remember that? Commissioned by the woke mayor there. And then, of course, calls to reduce the funding for police officers and then essentially defang our law to the point where you just do whatever you want. And you're okay, especially if you're a member of the marginalized population. No, you're marginalizing people when you're shooting them. What about them and their families? It's ridiculous. Yeah, I'm upset. I guess I'm upset because, again, it's the nation's capital. And and maybe I'm idealistic for thinking you should set the standard. Well, It's really not that surprising or shocking when you look at how the residents of the nation's capital have voted to govern themselves for decades. I I totally agree. Totally agree. But as you know, I mean, this is in the shadows of the 
the center of our government. But if you if you take that out of it and just look at it as a Democrat-run metropolitan area, they all have horrible crime problems. I know. That have only gotten worse in the last three or four years. Well, it's you know we shared the story yesterday about uh, thinking about San Francisco, beautiful city. I mean, good grief! If you've ever spent any time in, in California, and some may disagree, but you can't deny just the natural beauty of the state. It's incredible. The weather is fantastic. The coast. I mean, in, in so many, such a diverse landscape. You got the beach to the snow within two hours. And leftist policy has ruined much of it. So we, we talked about the debate. Um, so they have open primary in uh, California. The Senate seat, right, is coming up. U.S. Senate seat. This is what's crazy when you think about it. You had four candidates, including Steve Garvey, Republican candidate, Adam Schiff, prolific liar, member of the House, and then, um, heck, what's her name? Lee. What's her first name? I can't remember at this point. I'm so put out by her nonsense on the stage calling for a $50 an hour minimum wage. Barbara Lee. Barbara Lee, thank you. Uh, $50 an hour minimum wage. And she started out uh, with that, that statement, that proposal by saying, you just do the math. What the hell is she talking about? What do you mean, do the math? And she says, yeah, people in my in uh, my area, uh, some areas of California, you know, $104,000 is just, uh, which is what $50 an hour would amount to on a minimum wage, just barely enough to get by. It's your dang policies that created that. And so your solution is, oh, just force these employers, these greedy, dirty, profit-making employers, just let them hit the hip and pay more money. The next thing you know, a Big Mac's 30 bucks. And you have a quarter of the workforce because everybody's getting laid off because there ain't that much payroll. Right. Exactly. I mean, think about it. If your minimum wage right now is 15 an hour, which I'm pretty sure that's what California is now. Yep. 50 an hour. 50. It's just ridiculous. 50. In her words, do the math. Yeah, do the math. If they've only got X amount of dollars for payroll, they can now only hire and employ, at most, if they hit the hip for a little more, a third of their workforce. There's no way that math works. Of course, she has no absolute idea. What struck me, though, Rhino, is that Adam Schiff, who's a far-left loon and a lion loon at that, he wasn't the most left-leaning person on the stage. That's hard to believe. Think about that for a second. Adam Schiff is right of Barbara Lee, who's clueless. Clueless. And Steve Garvey, to his credit, said, the minimum wage is fine. That ain't the problem. We, we need to start tearing down these ridiculous policies that have made everything so freaking expensive in the state of California, like outrageous taxes to start with. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studio. Gerard Gibbert. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a Journey record jacket from the 1980s. Gerard Gibbert. 
Super Talk Mississippi. of the great Al Green, the Reverend. What an appropriate tune that is for Valentine's Day. Hope you're taking care of your significant other today and enjoying the weather, Valentine's Day. We're in the Element Well studio. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between Income, growth, and guarantees. The Dow hopping around, the old kangaroo. It was enjoying uh, a a rather comfortable day of gains. Just about 30 minutes ago, it turned negative while we were on the break. It's once again past the unchanged line, up a mere 12 points. You shared with me this morning that the old funny money was faring pretty well today, right? Yeah, north of 50,000. Wow. I've heard some predict 900,000. You ever heard that prediction? I mean, just crazy stuff like that. For Bitcoin? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not anytime soon in relative terms. Yeah. But there will come a time where they're no longer mining Bitcoin. All the Bitcoin that exists will be on the marketplace. That's right. And the mining process, of course, is is really... Problem solving. Um, that's right. It's uh, figuring out the hash numbers and making sure that all the all the transactions, if you will, the records have been properly inserted in, in uh, the databases, which are distributed across uh, multiple uh, platforms, multiple physical platforms. That's one of the that's one of the features of blockchain is this redundancy and this distributed ledger concept. And so, but folks, I mean, oversimplifying it with supply and demand. Right now, they can still add supply. At a certain point, the supply becomes stagnant. If demand continues to increase, the price is only going to go up. It's limited to, what, 20 billion coin, I think, or something like that. that. And so that's right. And so these folks that uh, have the, the tools and the capabilities of mining, which is really just solving problems, to ensure that the transactions are valid and properly inserted into the distributed ledgers, when they solve it, they are paid in Bitcoin. And the only problem you run into towards the end of the mining period is it no longer... at, At a certain point, and this will come a lot sooner than the last Bitcoin mined, it becomes cost prohibitive to mine for the reward you're gaining. That's right. It is an expensive endeavor. It essentially requires, um, for the most part, if you're going to you're going to do it to any degree, uh, large installations of the specialized compute platforms that are used to it, and it and it's actually uses kind of old technology. Oh yeah, uh, if you will. So there's there's um, graphics price processing units, those sorts of chips, and what are called ASICs as well, and those kind of combine to do the mining. Uh, those are installed in specialized computers. They generate a lot of heat, and they require big fans and lots of cooling. 
and a lot of noise. I mean, you literally cannot walk inside. Data centers are already noisy. It's the fans spinning in the devices, but these devices require even uh, stronger fans that make more noise, and so you really can't even walk in the room where these computers are without headsets on, noise-canceling headsets on. So, I mean, it would just ruin your hearing. It's crazy like that. But uh, it's fun to watch where all that stuff is sort of going. I mean, if you if you think about it, a lot it's lost on people. It, it seems like magic, but, I mean, computing is literally, it's literally just electrical signals going back and forth. But electricity yeah. going back and forth over a longer period of time is going to generate heat. Yep. I mean, that's why if you have an iPhone, I don't know about Android. I'm pretty sure it's the same on Android, but you could probably work around it. But on iPhone, it's a little bit harder to work around. At one point in time, the App Store allowed you to have apps on your phone that would mine Bitcoin. Hmm. The problem is that little computation device inside there would start overheating and it would fry your phone. I didn't even know that. I so they've, they've banned them from the App Store. That's why you don't see any Bitcoin mining or any other mining apps in the App Store is because it'll overheat your phone. I didn't know that. Because your phone's not designed to do that. I, I wasn't even sure of that. But you're right, though, that the fundamental elements of data, the bit, essentially, positive or negative, it's just, it's just different electrical charges. And yet the, the combination of that generates heat. Yeah, exactly. So... Um, I mean, anybody that's built a computer, built their own PC or something like that, they've probably learned that. But if you've never never dived into the inner workings of a computer, you probably never realized that that's what it is. Yeah, exactly right. So we had a uh, text on the ceasefire text line. Rick Clark Newway says, I hope you speak today on Senator Roger Wicker voting with the Democrats on the $95 billion spending bill with $61 billion going to Ukraine. We covered that actually at length yesterday because the vote had occurred. So this bill's passed the Senate. I believe there were 22 Republicans, which included Mississippi Senator Roger Wicker, Mississippi Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, voted in opposition of the measure. I was a little surprised, as we shared yesterday, that Senators Bill Cassidy and uh, and Kennedy from the great state of Louisiana, John Kennedy, of course, both voted in favor of the measure. Both voted in favor. Also, uh, former uh, member of the Armed Services, Senator Joni Ernst from Iowa, voted in favor. And Iowa's other senator... I think, if I'm not mistaken, the oldest serving senator in terms of age in the body, Chuck Grassley, also voted in favor. So both South Dakota senators, Senator Mike Round, Senator John Toon, both voted for it as well. Um, You know, this thing I don't think has a chance in the House. However... Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer from New York, he's pretty pretty mad about the fact that the Speaker has been indicating, signaling that he does not intend to take up the bill. But you should know that he has, he has once again asked the Senate for something on 
border reform, funding for that, and wants to include that in this bill. That kind of signals to me, hey, look, Senate, if you'll stick something meaningful, something we can live with, with with respect to funding border reform and improving border security, not this crazy 370-page bill that failed, but something that we can get on board with, we would consider over here in the House this additional funding to Ukraine and who else says it, Ryan? Oh, it's Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan. Taiwan. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what my, the message to me was. Hey, if you'll insert some border funding and, and serious border reform to truly secure the border, not this codifying of illegal immigration, which is what the prior bill, which failed last week, would have done, that perhaps his, uh, his chamber could support. This measure, which means they would be supporting more funding for Ukraine. And I I do not think that Senator Wicker's vote was a good one. I do not support this bill, and I do not think that his vote aligns with um, the sentiments of the majority of Mississippians. I'm speculating that just based on what I've heard anecdotally. Um, I mean, there's no polls to that extent on the state of Mississippi from from my knowledge. So, and and I've not heard him explain it other than the way everybody who supported this measure has explained it, which is they feel like it's critical to provide financial assistance to Ukraine uh, just to keep Russia in check uh, from a security perspective. There's There's fear that I've heard from some say, if we don't do this, Russia is going to overrun Ukraine and they're going to keep on plowing into Europe. And we could have a much bigger problem on our hands. I, honestly, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I would need a whole lot more data to support that. Something we've talked about on the program is I'm not seeing a whole lot of data. I do think most Americans, and I would be included in that, that oppose this, feel like, where's this money going exactly? I think we're kind of out, Rhino, of the early phases where most of our support came in the form of, honestly, uh, um, old assets, military assets that um, had been taken out of commission. Okay, have this old stuff. Help yourself. We're not going to use it anymore. Okay, now this is cash. And I think folks are concerned exactly how is that cash being used and how do we as Americans benefit from that more directly, articulate that. We're not getting that from those who support this uh, legislation. But when we come back, I'm going to talk about just some other aspects of government spending that I'd, I'd like to see people get more fired up about. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert, Middays with Gerard, Super Talk, Mississippi.
there you go. Joe Cocker. It is Valentine's Day. We're back in the Element Well studio. We thank you so much for joining us. So it it just looks to me that nothing gets folks more riled up, man, when it comes to allocation of taxpayer money than sending it to foreign nations, and especially Ukraine. No doubt. That is a huge problem, and a lot of people would like to see it stop, especially money that just ends up in some dang black hole vacuum, and nobody really knows what the heck's going on with it. And I mean, there, there are a lot of reports that suggest that the money being sent to Ukraine is not actually being used to, to fight the war, fund the war. No doubt, that's a concern. I share their concern. I would just like to see people get equally as passionate about the bloated domestic spending, especially that which is wasteful. Now, that could be somewhat subjective, of course, what's wasteful. But the Congressional Budget Office, which is theoretically nonpartisan, certainly promotes itself as such, it issued a report last August, we shared it on the program, that reflected $270 billion a year of waste, fraud, and abuse in a number of government programs, top of that list, Medicaid. Medicare, because those are just big spending categories. Defense, all kinds of crazy stuff throughout the agency complex of government. A year. And so while I appreciate the concern about the Ukraine deal, why doesn't anybody ever say anything about that but us? I'm not sure if it's because they're just not aware or if it just doesn't quite upset them to the level that sending it abroad does. Money's money. And it still causes the same problem, which is every time we go print money to uh, deploy it, in this case to Ukraine, or wasting it in these domestic programs, we're all paying for it in the form of inflation. Because government spending that has to be funded with debt is inherently inflationary. You're paying for it. And I just caution folks that no matter who gets elected in November, these $2 trillion deficits are going to continue. They're not going away. I don't care who it is. And all these people that are running, we got to stop the spending Unless you've got a plan to cut $2 trillion a year, we don't begin to pay down on the debt. $2 trillion. It's mind-boggling, to say the least. So nobody has really come forth yet and presented a viable plan that says, oh, yeah, here's how we get rid of that $2 trillion deficit. Now, the Democrats think they have one, and that's just to absolutely tax the life 
out of the sliver of people at the top of the income scale. Except they're terrible at math, as you know, because you could take all of their wealth. And it's good for about two and a half months of spending. That's how insane they are with that proposition. Same with Social Security. They believe that, oh, just get rid of the cap, and that'll do it. The, the cap being uh, any income earned over 100 I think it's $162,000 a year, is not subject to Social Security taxes. And so they, they want to eliminate that cap such that all those whose income is above that would be subject to Social Security uh, tax. Now, keep in mind, those people wouldn't get any more Social Security benefits. Social Security benefits are presently uh, maxed out. I think it's $54,000 a year. No matter how much you pay in, you could pay in a gazillion dollars, you're getting $54,000 a year. So it's a it's a huge redistribution apparatus is what it is, and that's what they want. Uh, in fact, they even want to further means test it so that you wouldn't even get those at the high end of the income scale. They wouldn't even get 54000 They get like zero, but they're going to pay in considerably more. That's their plan. So nobody's come forward, and, and unfortunately, I'm disappointed over the fact that who's likely to be the Republican nominee and, and uh, has, a, I think, a strong shot at becoming the next president, former President Donald Trump, his, his uh, position is we're not touching it. We're not touching it. Okay, well, not touching it means it's going to continue to go broke, and we're going to continue to have to print money to fund it. Social Security, Medicare. That's where we are. Something, some change has got to be done. I get it. It's not politically popular. It's the same on a smaller scale as PERS is in the state. You know, so many times we've referenced that. Anything, any action you take is not popular. It just isn't because you got to have more coming in or less going out, and nobody wants that. It's painful. So, and, and again, I, I'm not trying to downplay the significance whatsoever of the nuttiness of sending money to Ukraine. I'm not at all. I, I, well, what's even nuttier than sending it to Ukraine is well, we're sending money for weaponry to Israel and we're sending money for humanitarian aid to Gaza. That is true. In the same bill. Yeah, so that, um, and I, I guess that's to appease those as you can imagine, uh, in the Senate that stand with uh, the Palestinians. It, it reminds me... Even of, though Israel has plenty of money for their own weapons, right? and Gaza just misuses all humanitarian aid. Because it's corrupt as hell. Right. Yeah. So it, it to some extent, reminds me of, of, um, of the government. You don't see this anymore, but the federal government subsidizing the tobacco industry and then spending a jag of money on advertising to encourage people not to use tobacco. I mean that's just that's just the epitome of government right there, is it not? Just these these con conflicts like you you bring up. Uh, I agree. Uh, and there are numerous other examples of that kind of nonsense, but that that's when you're again you're trying to appease everybody and we can't agree on anything and you can't get anything passed because we can't agree on anything. That's that's just the truth. And that's where we are. So we'll see where that legislation goes. In the meantime, something else that we called yesterday on the show that we were likely to see a vote. 
to impeach Secretary Mayorkas of Homeland Security. We did, and it passed because Steve Scalise was back in the chamber, able to vote. And so, by the slimmest of margins, right, uh, the measure passed. I think it ended up one vote, right, Rhino? I think it was the final. Uh, 216 to 215, if I'm not mistaken. So, but something that was a bit curious is that, oh, 214, 213. I know it was yeah. one vote, 214, 213. But um, one of the reps from California who would have opposed the measure, a Democrat, has the COVID and was isolating and thus not on the floor to vote. Well, that just shows how inefficient government communication is within its own government, because the CDC came out two days ago and said you no longer have to isolate for five days if you have a COVID positive. I didn't know that, because this person made a statement. I'm isolating in accordance with CDC guidelines. So now they're saying don't worry about that anymore. Yep. And what's their rationale for that? I mean, I'm I'm with them. Well, what's their rationale? That the current strains that are moving about are yeah not anything to really be worried about it's a freaking any cold. more than the cold you know? yeah if you wouldn't isolate for a cold you don't isolate for covid now. uh representative judy chu is the uh, representative's name who was not present for the vote who would have torpedoed it had she been there she said unfortunately i recently tested positive for covid19 and am isolating in accordance with cdc guidelines I was unable to be on the floor to vote once again against impeaching Secretary Mayorkas. Now, this is going nowhere in the Senate. Absolutely nowhere. And um, I, I think that's pretty well known at this point. But something else we got to share with you that we talked about yesterday, the special election up there in New York to replace ousted Representative George Santos, disgraced ousted representatives. Tom Swazi, the Democrat, wins the special election. Had he been, had they waited to do the vote today, I believe he's going to be sworn in today. That would have changed the outcome of this deal. So, extremely tenuous, but it doesn't matter. It's going nowhere in the Senate. It is disturbing, though, that Swazi won. More about that on the other side of the break. Days with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. the great Elvin Bishop fooled around and fell in love. There you go. Distinguished guitarist as well. I misspoke on the CDC guidelines. So technically, the representative is following the CDC guidelines because according to 
quote-unquote, three unnamed officials who spoke to the Washington Post, they will be updating the CDC guidelines in April to do away with the five-day isolation, even though they've already made that decision now in February. I guess between now and then, it's still dangerous. Okay. Even though they haven't updated those (laughs) guidelines since December of 2021. What nonsense. Unbelievable. Wow. Okay. Well, appreciate the clarification. But So I guess the rep was isolating in accordance with at least the current day (laughs) restrictions. Well, it's changing in, in two months. Nuts. All right, so... Tom Swazi, as we inform, wins this special election. So that flips the seat for the Democrats. Is this a harbinger of November? Well, he wins by a margin of 55 to 45 and uh, defeated uh, Maisie Philippe, a Nassau County legislator tried to focus on immigration as an issue. Here's what struck me, Rhino. I want you folks to hear this now. You know how much Swazi spent? $25 million bucks on a house seat. In Mississippi, in a, an extremely contentious statewide race, say for Senate or Governor, you're looking at maybe a total in the recent cycles, total of 15, 25 million on a house seat. Is there no end to this? And the Democrats, we just have to be honest, they're way better at fundraising than Republicans are. And they don't have any issue of investing in critical races. This is one, of course, of the criticisms of RNC chairwoman, Ronna McDaniel, who's going to be replaced here in a few months. That's been established, announced. $25 million. That blew me away when I saw that on a house seat. So again, now, here's the deal. This is temporary. It's a special election. you got to run again in November. I don't know who should take up the charge there as the Republican candidate. I haven't seen anything about that at this point. But nonetheless, it, it is disturbing. The margin's what disturbed me, and the money. The margin was is worrisome at best, in my view. So we'll you could see. also look at turnout. Yeah, and it's, it's a special over 100, election. Over 100,000 less votes. Special election. Hard to get fired up. Uh, I it is uh, been being reported that, whereas the Republican, who, by the way, I didn't think was a great candidate, just to be clear. And that's the same thing we saw, you know, in the midterm cycle, um, that focused on immigration, because that is top of mind. Polls show that. And Mr. Swazi focused on abortion to a great extent. And that just, you know, it depends on where you are in the country. That is resonating with lots of voters. It just is. I think another problem, in especially in that situation, but it could be emblematic of nationwide, the Democrats had a big get-out-the-vote, mail-in vote, early voting apparatus, and the Republicans were counting on Election Day turnout. I always do. Well, if you've got 100,000 less people turning out to vote, and you've 
essentially told your voting base, don't do the early mail-in voting, you run the risk of falling, of coming up short on Election Day. I, I agree, and you would think that the Republican Party would learn uh, to take some instruction from what's happened in the past here, but they, they, they don't seem to be adjusting to that and accommodating that. Now, former President Trump really lashed out at Maisie uh, Polite and said that she lost the race because she didn't just come out and and unequivocally announce her endorsement for the former president. That's what he says. He says Republicans just don't learn, but maybe she's still a Democrat, he wrote on social media. I have an almost 99% endorsement success rate in primaries and a very good number in the general elections as well. But just watch this very foolish woman, Maisie Pleep, running in a race where she didn't endorse me and tried to straddle the fence when she would have easily won if she understood anything about modern-day politics in America. That's what the former president says. Well, we're stepping aside for Fox News and Super Talk News. Kathy Northington, Woman of Impact, American Heart Association, is next. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. We're live in the Element Well studio on this. Pop day. We welcome to the program now Kathy Northington, a woman of impact, American Heart Association. Kathy, thanks for coming in. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for inviting me, Gerard. Get your mic mic up here. There you go. Thanks for inviting me, Gerard. (laughs) Appreciate appreciate it. So um, I was just reading... Uh, yesterday, a little bit about uh, your story. So, so, and you got your your combination Valentine's and heart health shirt on today. I see your blouse. I, I do. Look, my kids say, "Mom, you're doing the most." But I was like, "Hey, <laughs> why not? If we, if I can wear this shirt today, will be the day to wear." Absolutely, I think it's awesome. All right, so um, tell us about uh, your story and and uh, what inspired you to get involved here to really promote this. Uh, this need for women in particular to be concerned about their health and specifically their heart health. Well, Gerard, you, you know, in my role at MEC, I, I normally don't do this and I've never done it before. But this one, it hit home personally for me because women, my grandmother would always say, if you're living in your, your destiny, your passion that is bigger than you. And so this happened to me with, you know, I, I was going nine to nothing. I was, you know, being a parent, being a friend, being a sister, being a daughter. And we do all these things and people give you this compliment. It's like, oh, I'm so proud of you. You're a superwoman. Yeah. And you think that's a compliment, but it's not because it's an illusion. And you operate on these terms. And when you're at your lowest and you're tired, you'll say, I can do this. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm superwoman. And you wear yourself thin. And I remember last year. April, I, it was my daughter, my baby of the family have three, 
her she was a senior in high school and it was the day before prom and leading up to it and it was the week before MEC's annual meeting leading up to it three days before my head was killing me it was a hmm. headache I just couldn't explain hmm. and I don't normally have headaches and I, I said well I'm just tired I've been I've been working a lot. I was emotional. I was crying all the time. And I was like, what is wrong with me? This this is not Kathy Northington. And I remember the day before her prom and I said, Jordan, I'm not feeling good. I'm going to lay down for a second. If I'm not feeling OK when I lay down, because I'm probably just tired, I may need you to take me to the hospital. And she said, oh, OK, mom. And a friend of mine called me and he said, Kathy, how are you feeling? I was like, I, I have a headache. He's like, you've had that headache for about three days. You need to check your blood pressure. And I said, well, I don't, I don't have heart. I don't have high blood pressure. I don't take medicine. I eat right. I, mm-hmm. I exercise. It doesn't run in my family. I'm, I'm just probably tired. And he was like, I, I don't know. You may need to check it. And he said, just go to Kroger or Walgreens. And I was like, I don't, I'm tired. I'm just going to rest. He said, well, Take a little bit of mustard, teaspoon of mustard. Do you have mustard and an apple cider vinegar in your house? And I said, yes. He said, take a little cap full of it and it'll keep it down. And George said, Mom, I think Dad has a hot blood pressure monitor at the house. You want me to call him and see if he'll come over? Hmm. And I said, sure. So he came over and he was giving, he said, okay, this is what you need to do. And he checked it and it was high. My top number was maybe 200. Bottom number was, you know, high. And I said, he said, okay, Kathy, let's try it again. Jordan, get your mom some water, drink some water. Let's, let's do it again. And this time, Kathy, sit down and, you know, try to relax a little. So I did that. And he said, he looked at it again and he really didn't say anything. Then he said, well, I haven't used it in a few years. Let me check mine to make sure it's good. And he checked his and he said, Kathy, I think, I think you, you may, it's pretty high. You might need to go to the hospital because mine's is normal. And I started crying. You know, I said, I don't, I can't because what if they keep me and I'm going to miss George prom and I need to help her get these things done for prom. Mm-hmm. And he said, okay, because, you know, we were married and he knew that it, telling me that saying we need to go, it probably wasn't going to happen. I said, no, I need to go to prom. And so I, I rest and the apple cider vinegar and the mustard took it down, which is really normally. I've not never good, heard that before. Yeah, me neither. Apple and, cider vinegar. Well, they say that you really shouldn't do it because of the amount of salt in it. But it, it for some reason, yeah. don't ask me the scientific reason, but it did kind of keep it down low. But I wouldn't advise anybody to really try and mustard. It. Like mixed? No. How do you do that? Just a cat, just a teaspoon of mustard. Okay. So you're gonna have to bring somebody else in to dispel I've this myth. Do that. not listen to me. You didn't hear it from Kathy Northington. <laughs> okay. But at that point, I was like, I'm not missing prom. And it's so ironic because she wore a red dress. Okay. A red dress to prom. And looking back, I didn't have any pictures of her at prom with me yeah. because I didn't have any energy to do anything. She had a picture with her dad, but not with me. Well, I didn't go to the doctor, and I was laying down, and I felt better. I felt better. I went to work Monday because it was the week of annual meeting. Yeah. And I, I couldn't miss annual meeting. And as soon as I got into the office and started doing things, my head started hurting again. And it was like you're tying something around your head. It's like a sinus headache yeah. on steroids. I, I just can't explain the pain. And I said, this is not good. So I called my doctor and I said, hey, I'm on pressure. And I said, can I come in? And she said, what is it? And she said, yes, I need you to come in now. She said, Kathy, do you realize, she was telling the numbers, and you're, you're 
numbers were at its stroke level. Yeah, I was, I was about to say that when you, you read she, them out there. Yeah, she said, you could have had a stroke. You can't let your pre-. And I was like, well, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And she said, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Sometimes it just happens because of, you know, age or overtime stress and you're working at these levels because you're saying oh you know i can do this it's it's, i'm just tired because that's what so many of us say so with that story so many people look at me and i hear it all the time oh you're just going and you're balancing everything and and you have this all figured out and you know you're you're the modern day superwoman i'm not and I shouldn't operate on those levels. And I wouldn't advise anyone else to look at me and think that they should because I'm doing it because it almost killed me and it scared me. So I, I had to do this. And I, I normally don't because I'll get pulled in a million different directions. And now my kids are looking at me, said, Mom, don't don't stress yourself out with this campaign. And, you you know, you get your levels up. But the scary thing about it is, Javard, you don't realize, that's why they call it the silent killer, because you don't realize how your pressure is until it's, until it's high. Because even me, you know, you have this illusion of you can get through anything. I tried to get myself off of it. I was like, okay, I just need to cut back on this, and I'm going to control my stress. I'm just going to let things blow off. And it's, it's not that easy. And so this is, you know, I started doing research when I was asked to do it. It's the number one killer for women and then the 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 rate of women that are pregnant is the highest mortality rate for women that are pregnant. And I didn't mm. know this. Mm. I didn't know that doing this with CPR, there's so many women that even bystander CPR don't want to get it done because of, you know, the connection of. And so women, a lot of women die because of situations like that, because it's not too many that won't heart to heart and i was told in in research that even when they're taking cpr classes people tend to stay away from the woman mannequin because they don't want the look of it to be inappropriate so all of these things are going through my head and i was researching i was researching and a good friend of mine deborah mcgee is chairing this project and she said would you consider being one of the women impact and i was like what what does that mean you know taking it back and she told me and i was like yes i think not do I necessarily want to do it. I think I have to do it. I think it's a must for me. So it's about eight women around, you know, in the, in the city, in the Jackson area that was selected as nominees. It's awesome. And we have a campaign. It's a six-week campaign. It kicks off February the 2nd across the nation, and it ends April the 4th. And we're not only raising money. It's a blind campaign, so you can't see what everybody's raising. We're raising awareness, and we're raising Funds and it's and you build this team and we have all our websites and you can go to the American Heart Association website and you can look at all the nominees, hear their stories. All these women have impacted someone some way and they have their own unique story and it's unique to them and it's important and it's something that we should all pay attention to. And for me, it's it's not just about winning, but of course I, I you know, I want to win, especially I'm wearing this shirt. And <laughs> but it's about raising awareness. And during this campaign, 
to prove that you're not only raising money, you're raising awareness. And each week we have a challenge. And each week is a different challenge. This week, you know, maybe CPR. The next week it's, you know, gratitude. And yeah. so we're doing these things and building a team. So before you, before you go, okay. um, how are you doing? Do you have your blood pressure under control? Yes, and I carry it. And, and it was embarrassing for me because I carried it in my purse. And I have this little pill pack to say Monday, Tuesday, so I can say, did I did I take it today? Yeah. And so I do that, and I feel okay. And I think some people are saying, are you okay? Because you're a lot calmer than you normally are. And I, I say, you know what? It's, it, sometimes some things don't matter. Yeah. And you just got to pick your battles. So, and sometimes you just got to release it. Yeah. And that helps get through it as well, as yes. you know. Well, Kathy, congratulations. And your, your story is quite inspirational. And I certainly hope that uh, especially all the ladies out there heard your story and they'll take care of themselves as well. Definitely. Please do. Appreciate it, Kathy. Thank congratulations. you. Congratulations. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Coming right back, folks. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. The rolling, hit it, go, play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. in the Element Well Studio. We appreciate Kathy for coming in and sharing her story. Quite inspirational. It's absolutely true. I, I have borderline high blood pressure as well and uh, have taken medicine for it. But in the medicine, of course, you know, Rhino, it's it's effective and it and it's it's case by case, honestly. You know, there's different types of medicine that doctors sometimes will just have to keep trying different dosages and in types to finally find something, but I tell you, there's no substitute for trying to rid your life of the stress and um, and exercising, and of course eating right. But as she said, sometimes none of that helps. I mean, it's it's just the way the body works. It's, just, it's a mystery to some extent, but at least when it comes to blood pressure. As yes. far as blood pressure medication and exercise, sometimes exercise isn't enough and you need medication. That's but right. I saw a report recently where exercise in and of itself is one and a half times more effective than the average antidepressant medication. I'll be darned. You know, one of the things that um, I was advised of by um, by a friend who also was diagnosed with high blood pressure at a young age, actually, and and said that his physician said, your personality is such that you keep the stress inside and that it's a good idea for you to just let that go and to um, um, sort of excrete it out of your body and actually recommended while you're driving, (laughs) just scream. (laughs) <laughs> you know, just let it go and and sort of relieve the pressure of uh, of the stress. 
Um, you know, and I can tell you this, when I was in business, I never slept through the night. I mean, you're just constantly stressed out about a million things, and you just don't sleep well. And, and that, of course, can be a contributor, can be a factor that drives high blood pressure. And um, after I exited the business world, um, honestly, I just I sleep better at night. Don't have that stress, you know, weighing on me 24 hours a day. And, and, and it, look, you don't have to be an entrepreneur to feel that. Everybody in their, in their work life, of course. And not just their work life, their personal life. It's especially hard, as Kathy points out, when you're, you're a mother and you're trying to take care. Like, I'm stressed out about a prom. I get that. For your daughter, and at the same time, you're dealing with this health issue and then you got work. So the combination of all that is, is, uh, certainly can, can influence uh, one's health and uh, impact it and can certainly be a contributor to uh, high blood pressure. But she's right. When you hit start hitting the 200 um, number on the top, um, the systolic, I believe that is, systolic over diastolic, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. So, yeah, you're getting in the stroke territory there, and that's very dangerous. We don't want to see that happen to anybody. So appreciate Kathy for coming in and sharing her story, and hopefully that's um, – Good advice to folks out there. If you're if in in having a headache that doesn't go away that lingers, that's a that's a pretty common symptom of um, of high blood pressure. You hear that a lot. And then of course you get on the medicine. Sometimes that can cause a little lightheadedness and dizziness. Um, I I play golf with somebody that. Well, it's because uh, your body got used to the high blood pressure and now it's got normal blood pressure. Yeah. And even if you stop it a couple of days and then resume it, I've I've had that situation where I've just forgot travel or something, didn't take my medicine, and then I resume it. And that'll cause a little bit of lightheadedness. But I got a friend play I play golf with. It's about my age. That um, is actually a doctor and takes high blood pressure medicine. And he has to be careful when he when he uh, bends over to get his golf ball out of the cup. That sometimes that just that movement can affect you. Head rush. Well. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, that's where all the blood is uh, is up there. But just want to call attention to that. Take care of yourself, folks. That's the main thing. And get your blood pressure checked. And um, honestly, we got lots of tools these days to take care of that. But you got to know about it, and you got to just accept it. And it's hard. I get it. You know, nobody wants to think that that's an issue. Appreciate it. Um, Jack and Jacktown says that uh, I think he's talking about. Elvin Bishop, we played his tune a minute ago, fooled around and fell in love. He was a guitarist, of course, said his brother was in Animal House. I didn't know that. He said Belushi smashed his guitar. I do remember that scene. That was pretty good. Appreciate that. I think if you dig deeper, they were both Democrats. They figured out a way to never lose. That's Jerry and Waynesboro. Uh, Jerry, I think the problem with that, with that um, I guess, theory is that it kind of speculates if you just had somebody that were uh, further to the right that they would have fared better in that seat. I don't know. In that race, I should say. I don't know. And it remains to be seen. Thomas and Greenwood says she's going to run again. I don't think she's a candidate. Rhino, you you, you hit the nail on the head when you um, just pointed out to me during the break that uh, her communications yeah, I mean, I don't think English is her first language. Was, that's not a slight. She right. knows more languages than I do. But when it comes to politicians, there's a certain communication aspect that's expected. So if you have a hard time understanding somebody, you're probably going to have a hard time voting for them. There's no doubt that that's a huge factor. 
in uh, influencing voters. No doubt. People vote emotion, largely. And so I think it uh, was, a, was a situation there. And then, of course, we had just poor, poor turnout, as you uh, suggested, and that's because of Which it. Some of that they blamed on snow. Yeah, it was. I mean, like six inches of snow in the Bronx today or something. And then, of course, former President Trump says because she didn't come out and just unequivocally kiss the ring. endorse me. I don't know if that was an issue or not, honestly. I'd, I'd, I think I'd I have think to... I think it's dumb for him to care. Yeah, um, I, I think that's just an effort to call attention to himself, of course, and, and to kind of boost his fortunes uh, coming up here. In uh, in November, of course, Thompson Greenwood says that she doesn't. He doesn't think that necessarily that um, that Trump is going to uh, win. I do. I do think that uh, if he is the nominee, I, I would at this point, if it's against Joe Biden, I say he wins. I just think that there's just too much out there. Um, to some extent, maybe privately. The opinion held by voters, even Democrat voters, mainly these swing state Democrat or independent voters that say, that think this guy's just too old, nothing else. Eighty-six percent of the nation feels that way. That's that's kind of a blow to the Biden campaign. Now you're starting to see some leakage from inside the White House that he's behaving uh, rather um, irately. And it's just confrontational, apoplectic, just furious all the time, enraged. You're seeing some leakage from inside the White House about that. Is that not sometimes kind of a symptom of at least early stages of dementia, I believe? It can manifest in that way. And I I mean, I don't know that he's been formally diagnosed with that. I think we know that. He has said that he will not submit to a cognitive test as part of his upcoming physical. A lot of people use the term sundowner syndrome, which isn't technically a disease, but it's a a collection of symptoms that are dementia-related. Okay. And those include difficulty sleeping, anxiety, agitation, hallucinations, pacing, and disorientation. Well, he seems to... He exhibits exhibit many of those symptoms. Many of those. You may have seen he... Was it yesterday or day before yesterday? Once again, he was with the King of Jordan, I believe, at the White House there, and once again didn't know what the where the heck he was going when he when it was his turn to speak, and then he didn't know where to go when he was done, and it's just embarrassing. Honestly, I'm embarrassed for him. I, you know, um, it's like man, uh, and again, my my complaint is with the people who kind of forced him into it. He just really was not able. To fulfill the duties, and certainly not, in my view, for another four years. And I think that's the broad sentiment held by voters. And on that basis alone, almost, I believe Donald Trump would prevail over him in another matchup, if, in fact, he's the man. But there's still time. There's still a possibility that uh, that he won't be. I don't know what to think about that at this point. I'm in here laughing because I was just reminded of, I forget which blogger or influencer or whatever name they want to give themselves had a a breaking story that he had insider information from the Democrat Party that they're going to offer Kamala Harris a five-year deal worth $100 million to run an organization so she'll get away from being the VP. Oh, my gosh. And and essentially won't won't 
complain or won't appear to be aggrieved about it if she's not the person, yeah. I still say that if he steps aside, their big problem is what to do with her, that the expectation would be uh, sort of naturally because of her being the VP and being a black female that you got to get behind her, right? It's historical. Also, have you seen that uh, we'll, get, we'll get this on the other side of the break? There's a little bit of conflict going on in the ranks of the White House press secretary as well, Corrine Jean-Pierre. We're in the Element Well studio coming right back. Hey, is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. In the Element Well studio, seems to be a little controversy surrounding uh, the White House press secretary position. You got uh, John Kirby, who is in a relatively new role, like special counselor to the president or something like that. And you've probably seen him if you pay attention to the watch any of these these briefings that are conducted by the White House there. Coordinator for Strategic Communications at the National Security Council. Okay. But I I thought he got sort of reassigned here recently. Um, Maybe I'm wrong about that, to be working more directly with the president. But nonetheless, he has been accompanying Corrine Jean-Pierre on a more frequent basis in the last few weeks. And, in fact, he'll frequently... Assume uh, the podium there and uh, respond to questions from the press corps, the White House press corps. He has indicated he would like to be the White House press secretary. That's the controversy. Apparently, that is weak, uh, uh, leaked. And so I don't know if there's something coming in that respect or not. But even the New York Times published a piece on it. Who speaks for the president? Depends on whom you ask. That's the title just yesterday of an article. Uh, says it the, the White House has increasingly relied on John Kirby, a longtime Washington hand, to spread its message. So the two are together, seems like, in, in every briefing these days, whereas before it was just her in soli- uh, solitude there. So... We'll see what happens. You know, is it not a problem, though, Rhino, when you think about it? My gosh, she's a 61-year-old white male. We can't have that, right? She checks three boxes. She's black. 
she's female, and she's gay. I mean, that's trifecta. Jackpot. Yeah, she's got the job until she wants another one. Well, that's what I was thinking. But John Kirby, yeah, you're right. He is still his spokesman for the White House. I think that's the difference. Before, I think it was for the Department of Defense. And maybe now it's on behalf of the White House for national security. I think maybe that's the, the nuanced change that recently occurred, but which is, I believe now, why he is attending these press briefings. I mean, he, you would see him in the past, but usually it was in the capacity with the National Security Council. I think now it's because he's like a bona fide official spokesperson for the White House. So we got two. But it's another situation where, honestly, when you watch the White House press briefings, He's way better at answering the questions. He just knows a lot more than she does. She's more about trying to cover up for her boss and spin stuff. He does a little bit, but his depth, his color, his insight on issues is just, I think, um, exceeds hers, shall we say. So might there be a change made there? Well, I don't know, but you would have to believe if that's the case, there would be these decries of racism, would there not? And and um, and racism, sexism, misogyny, homophobia, yeah, all that stuff. (laughs) Exactly. I, I, but that's you know, you're sort of living and dying by the sword, I guess, as they say. Same thing with the vice president. I had to have that. Didn't really matter that she's really not qualified, but, man, you had to check those boxes. That's the march to mediocrity, of course, that diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, uh, bring. No doubt about it. it um, it's disturbing. But we'll see. I just, I just noted that, that when the New York Times starts writing about it, you know there must be a little something to it. I think that's what's going on here. By the way, I'm, I'm watching... Uh, 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 what appears to be a hearing there on the Hill about banks monitoring private citizen activity, looking for political language, if you will, and the Treasury is being questioned over whether or not they were surveilling citizens, and now it appears that they're admitting they were. So what is it, Trump and MAGA and Dick Sporting Goods and a couple of other key words that they were, that they were um, filtering in, tra- in bank transactions, somehow I guess you'd end up on some sort of list where they thought you might be a threat to national security because you, I guess you're contributing to Trump, I don't know, or some cause that had the word Trump in it, or MAGA, or Dick Sporting Goods. Oh, my gosh, meaning that you might be buying a gun, I guess. So, oh, wow. it's That kind of stuff is um, ridiculous, and I think it enrages lots of Americans, this surveillance state, no doubt about it. And it's 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 none you, federal government. Yeah, Dick Sporting Goods doesn't even sell guns anymore. Right. They discontinued that a couple of years ago. So, what? okay, what's the purpose of that? Are you just more likely to be, I guess, their customer profile? Is maybe one that they consider to be more of a threat, I guess, to national security. Of course, they think everybody on the right is such. I mean, extremists, right? That's what they say. 
It's just how upside down things are uh, in the country. Kirby has a doctoral degree in CYA, says Jerry in Waynesboro. Gosh, I I think I would award such a degree to Corrine Jean-Pierre when it comes to covering for her boss, not herself personally. But um, she's pretty good about, I think, well, I, I say good. I say she regularly is, is uh, spinning stuff that happens, like his cognitive ability. Oh, he's just energetic. And he we does have a hard more time. in an hour than most people do in a day. Can't keep up with him. Well, what's his schedule stuff? look like for the next three days? Oh, he's got <laughs> nothing going on. Exactly. Um, Wait, what? Yeah. What's the term they use? Called it for a day. What's that? Lid. Lid, the lid, right. It seems to happen a lot with him. By the way, the uh, president did offer a statement on the impeachment of Secretary Mayorkas. History will not look kindly on House Republicans for their blatant act of unconstitutional partisanship that has targeted an honorable public servant in order to play Petty political games. I mean, oh, you I, mean like banning not light natural gas exports from Texas? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, man. It's just unbelievable how clueless they can be. It's, it's like intentionally clueless, I would say. By the way, back to this reminded me. I uh, subscribe to the Department of Commerce newsletter. Okay, so we were just talking about this problem the White House has with respect to replacing KJP on the basis of her physical attributes, which I think largely contributed to her landing that position, replacing her with a white male, that being John Kirby, whom um, I don't necessarily agree with his policy positions and beliefs and views, but I, I do think he's more competent than her. Just watching the two of them um, there at the post. Not a very no, it's a very low bar. Task. I agree. But uh, so you know, many times we've talked about day one when the president was elected, he, he immediately signed off on a bunch of executive orders, which essentially mandated that the agencies under under his purview would place climate and race and gender as a as a theme as a guide in all their policy making it would that it would essentially underscore and be woven in all of the policy making okay so today this is the official press release from the office of public affairs from the US department of commerce <laughs> They released an update on their equity action plan. That's what you want the Department of Commerce focusing on. Today, the U.S. Department of Commerce released a 2023 update to its equity action plan in coordination with a Biden-Harris administration's whole-of-government equity agenda. Again, talking about those executive orders. Further advancing racial equity and support for underserved communities throughout the federal government. It reaffirms the administration's commitment to deliver equity and build an America in which all can participate, prosper, and reach their full potential. It's got no place 
in the Department of Commerce's policymaking in their chief function. Coming right back. Rogers Dab Chevrolet is... It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show! On Super Talk Mississippi. In the Element Well Studio on the Ceasefire Text Line, Lindy from Gluckstadt. By the way, six zero one eight seven nine four three nine five. Lindy says, "Do you think Trump's remarks on NATO affected the New York election?" I really don't. I, I think that uh, Rhino's analysis is is uh, more accurate in that the candidate was was just not a really strong candidate, and the the communication issue was a big factor there. I don't think the fact that she didn't endorse Trump, I just don't think people are thinking about that when they vote. Uh, Not in New York especially. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, even right-leaning people in that district are are moderate by, I guess, Mississippi standards. At best, moderate, honestly, if you think about it. Um, And I don't think that a whole lot of people really know about his NATO off-the-cuff comments. Now, it is true his campaign's spinning the heck out of that. They're they're trying to put that genie back in the bottle. Um, What he said, I I guess, kind of makes sense if you're in a private setting, honestly. I'm not sure it makes sense to say it publicly in the year of a campaign. Basically, he said that um, if a country in NATO didn't, quote, pay its bills that this country, if he were president, would not protect them from a Russian invasion. And, in fact, he would encourage them to do, in his words, whatever the hell they want, is what he said. So, you know, encouraging Russia to just have at it and attack Western Europe, uh, countries who are part of NATO, I don't know that that's the most prudent thing one could say publicly. I completely agree with him, however, that it is obviously not equitable. It's not fair for, for us to absorb the vast majority of the cost and take on the responsibility of defending them, especially when they're, those European nations are, are, are pretty well entrenched in socialism and much of their government goes to public services. You know, you got to take care of your sovereignty as well and defend your borders. And you need to you need to increase your your output and your investment in defending yourselves and not just rely on this country. So I think Trump was absolutely correct in calling out. And look, you, all you got to do is look at the math. I mean, this is this has been the case for decades, where the amount of money we spend of our GDP is considerably more than all those nations. And in fact, on our military, it's like more than all them put together. And and they actually are more vulnerable to an attack because just because of their geographic proximity to the country who's most likely to launch an attack. So they I think they've gotten a little too too cushy 
too reliant on us. I totally agree with the former president in that respect. You got to pay up. You got to pay your share. Quit spending. And of course, Rhino, you know you you got to retire at sixty so you can live off the government the remaining of your life. And when France tried to raise raise the retirement age a year or so ago, they started emptied into the streets and rioted. Oh my well, God! Well, in fairness, it doesn't take much to get French people to riot. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's so true. It's like their national pastime. That's true. Oh, gosh. And then the climate nuts. Chocolate bread and rioting. <laughs> the climate nuts. And really good butter. Trying to deface the um, the art, right? The Mona Lisa and so forth in the Louvre. Uh, nothing else better to do, I guess. But so I, I completely agree with, with the president that um, – Certainly, we need to share in the cost of that. We just don't need to pay an outsized, I mean, a dramatically outsized amount relative to the total cost of just keeping the world intact. And they become a little too complacent. He pointed that out. I totally agree. Now, we should also point out that uh, Italy and France have somewhat increased their defense spending Still not up to where we are with respect to the percent of GDP, but it's it's better. It's like fraction of a percent, you know, in in those countries. So, and look and and also look at defense spending as a percentage of their total spending. And in and in this country, it's it's um, about eighteen percent, nineteen percent. And in those countries, if you look at them, it's like one to two. All your money's going to all if these that. right. If that, all your money's going to all these social programs, and then of course you let everybody retire. You, you what? You work twenty hours a week or something like that. In France, I believe you're forbidden from even engaging in business email after hours. I mean, it's like a law against that nonsense. You know, and everybody gets like three months a year off. I mean, I may be exaggerating a little bit, but in general, they're way more about leisure time than they are actually working. So I don't really feel sorry for you when you consider the the difference in the work culture between the nations, uh, between the continents. So get your butt to work and make some money and contribute to the defense of the world. Coming right back. After Fox News and Super Talk News with Robert Enloe, President and CEO of Ed Choice, we're in the Element Well Studio. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply, to think deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Well, studio, we thank you so much for joining us. We have turned the corner into the afternoon portion of the program on this hump day. We welcome now Robert Enloe, president and CEO of Ed Choice. Robert, good to see you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. 
You bet. So um, I have uh, certainly read much of your works and seen you speak before and and uh, certainly familiar with uh, education choice, education freedom, and your work in that arena. As you well know, this is something that is front and center here in the great state of Mississippi. We have some limited education uh, choice uh, programs. But we, uh, we feel like that we have a legislature and a governor that is uh, somewhat hungry, has a bit of an appetite to expand those programs uh, even further. And there are many advocacy groups working on that behalf, and as, as well as members of both the House and the Senate. Uh, so start out by by talking to us first about some of the uh, some of the successes we've seen with respect to enacting uh, school choice in some of our neighboring states. In particular, the one that comes to mind is is Arkansas, right across the river there. Yep. So let's talk about the growth of educational choice in America since 2010 and how much it's been blowing up. So in 2010, we called it the year of school choice because state of like Indiana passed what was a nearly universal voucher program. And a bunch of states did that, sort of living families, particularly low-income families, to choose a private school that worked best for them. Along comes Arizona, and they pass an ESA program. And now an ESA program for everyone, just uh, that your listeners, a, a school voucher program is a very simple uh, program. The money, the family chooses a school, the money then goes to the school of the family's choice. An ESA program says, hey, the family gets the money put into an online platform where they can choose the services that they want, whether they're schools, public school, private school, or tutoring or therapies. It's a much more customizable service. And that happened in 2021 when West Virginia passed a universal ESA program. Little tiny West Virginia that no one would ever think, a hotbed of union control, uh, ends up passing a universal ESA program. And now what's happened in 2023, we call it the year of universal choice. There are 10 states now that have basically passed the ability for every single family in the state to choose every single opportunity, including your state directly across the river, Arkansas, by passing the Arkansas Learn Act. And then your state just a couple over in Florida, right, where they also did that. And so, and your state just above you in Tennessee will be doing it this year. And Alabama right Alabama, next year will yeah. be doing it. So it's, what's happening now around the country is, is legislatures are beginning to understand that every family deserves an educational option. And Mississippi is, is hopefully going to come along with that trend. We do a study every year looking at, uh, of the 31 states with school choice programs, the goal is basically to say what parents want, where they fit in, right? Whether it's public, private, charter, online, at home. So what share do they have? Like how many kids go to public school? How many kids go to private school? Right now, Mississippi is ranked 29th out of 31. And our hope is that you'll allow more families to have more options rather than a small program, that you'll join your neighbors across the river and your neighbors to the north and your neighbors a few states over and, and your neighbors in Oklahoma. There's a lot of folks in the south and Louisiana. They're all moving towards universal choice, and we hope we hope Mississippi will get us there, too. You know, Robert, uh, the thing that comes up a lot anytime this uh, this issue is is discussed, and this this includes around our capital as well. Something I know in your line of work, you encounter on a regular basis, is, is that school choice is is often perceived. Um, really, it's a misconception, honestly, that it is anti-public school. Talk about that. So. That's an unfortunate thing because the whole goal here is to be sector agnostic. And by that, I mean, 
we really shouldn't care where a family goes to school. It's that they go to school and get educated, right? And so as a state and as a society, we believe that it's in the public interest to educate all kids. Now, whether those kids are educated in a traditional public school system or in a charter school or in a non-public school or in other kinds of ways of doing it through homeschooling or co-ops, we really should be agnostic towards that. And so one of the things we know from school choice programs across the country very clearly from the data, and even the people who oppose school choice agree with this data, is that in a state with school choice programs that are broad, public schools get better faster. Right? There is a massive improvement in the traditional school sector uh, when you have school choice programs. And so it is a myth that public schools get harmed and that public schools shouldn't be part of the choices. There are many good choices in our in our traditional public school system. The fact is we just need to make sure parents have freedom. And so it, when, you, when you hear people say, oh, it's going to hurt public schools, A, the evidence doesn't back that. And B, school choice is about uh, ensuring all families have choice, just not based on where you live. Right now, we have a system of school choice based on how much you can afford for your house. Yeah. Yeah, uh, great explanation. Appreciate that. So the the other thing, of course, that we hear on a re- regular basis uh, f- uh, from those who oppose school choice, honestly, uh, is that, oh, this is just going to overwhelm the public schools if we had a public-to-public option, for example, and, and we had a high-performing district or school that is uh, very close in proximity to a poor-performing poor one that all the, all the families, all the students in the poor-performing are just going to exit and descend upon the, the higher-performing school, and that just would, would overwhelm it. But all of these states that have implemented the public-public, for the most part, they've also included uh, some sort of reasonable guardrails around that. The, the goal is not to hurt or harm anything that's working. That's correct. Yeah, absolutely. The, the goal is to make sure that families can do the best they can for the for what they want. And families don't just pick up and move their kids willy-nilly, right? It's not something that families do to kids, right? It's this idea that what does it say when someone says to you that, oh, I'm worried about school choice because it's going to just everyone's going to flee our system. Well, that should make you worried, yeah. right? If, if I'm a school leader and someone's saying that about my school, I'm going to be very worried and do the best I can. And it flies in the face of everything we know about competition in America. When you actually have a high-performing model and there's a low-performing model, the, the low-performing model has to improve, and they have to improve faster. And that's what you want, is you want that freedom and flexibility to create a competitive environment where all schools get better. And if you put the right guardrails around, right, then you're going to make sure that, it, that it's done that way. But again, our goal here is to separate the funding of education, which we all believe in, from the from the mere government running of schools. Yeah. And if families want to choose our great public schools, that's great. If they don't, that's also great, and we should support that. Yeah. So I receive uh, lots of questions here uh, from our, our fantastic audience uh, on our text line anytime we talk about th- this subject, the subject of school choice, uh, about would it do this? Would it do that? I mean, from anything from do we are we just sending checks to to parents that they can just use however they want, and they're not restricted to to um, uh, programs and systems that, that uh, pretty much ensure that those funds that are allocated are only used for bona fide educational purposes. I really like Arizona system. By the way, you talked about that earlier. The the electronic system they built is pretty neat, honestly. Uh, but it's all, all kinds of things come up that are just questions that I feel like, to a great extent, Robert, are being kind of seeded from the anti-school choice crowd. 
And my answer usually is, look, it's whatever the legislature drafts that can pass through the normal process of enacting legislation. There's there's not like there's this there's this just standard template model that you just have to implement exactly that way. The reality is all these states that have implemented some sort of school choice programs, they're somewhat different. They're similar in many respects, but they're different. Talk about the process there. So they are very different, and, and it depends on whether it's a traditional school voucher program or an ESA program or a tax credit scholarship program or whether it's a program like Evan Mississippi for special needs kids, right? So every program is different. Here's one thing I will say that I think your listeners might not have heard before. I believe that school choice programs, particularly ESA programs, are significantly more accountable than traditional schools, and I'll tell you why. Um, when it comes to the financial uh, money, when the money for families that are put on the online platform, which, by the way, a family applies, gets approved uh, by the government, agrees and signs some a contract saying they will only use it for the approved educational expenses, right? Goes online to their platform and builds a program to educate their kids, right? So all this is stuff that is not done anywhere else, um, and then the, the state will allocate those funds through the platform. I can tell you in Arizona where every single dollar of the ESA program goes at every single minute yeah. of every single day, Yeah. right? And I can challenge any traditional school system to say, I, uh, where is the money going? Now, you, you could make an argument that I don't like that the money is going to certain places. That's fine. We can have that discussion. Yeah. But there are guardrails around that already. The state has to approve the vendors. The state has to approve uh, who who, um, what, what vendors can come in and what curriculums can be used. So there's plenty of guardrails already, but there's also plenty of transparency, right? And so you'll hear lots of fear-mongering. Oh, if you have an ESA, parents will buy a chicken coop, right? Well, okay, let's have this question. How many traditional schools have chicken coops or terrariums or fish tanks or <laughs> all sorts of things because that actually helps educate kids? No one questions that, right? But when a family does it, then Robert, we, we don't trust. We got a so, break. If you can hang with us, we can continue this discussion on the other side of the break. Coming right back. Check it out. Let's do this. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. everyone middays we're visiting with robert enlow president and ceo of ed choice talking about school choice so um let's talk about what we're what you you cover that great robert just the the differences between the way states have implemented their programs and again i just want to make sure that folks understand something i've said many many times on the on the show is that it's it's not like 
um, you don't start with a clean slate because you do. I mean, it really is a matter of just drawing out exactly, just like any other legislation. It's whatever um, you you could draft in the way of a bill that, of course, is um, in compliance with our Constitution, our state Constitution, our federal laws, as the case may be, that can pass both chambers and get signed by the governor. I mean, that's that really is what it boils down to. Now, that's not to say that we don't have lots of other uh, samples that could instruct us and guide us in creating our own program. And I dare say, Robert, that what we should do, since we got a number of other states that have already blazed this trail, is take the best practices from all of them and combine that into what would make the most sense for the state of Mississippi. I think that's exactly right. You're, you're in an enviable position in Mississippi at being the second go of the uh, of, of this effort, right? Which means you can look at what was successful in Florida, but not and, and take that, but not what didn't work. You could look at what was successful in Arizona and take what worked and and use that, but not what didn't work. So, really exciting opportunity for you guys to to build your platform. For example, when we look at choice, uh, we look at it in three ways. Universal eligibility, right? Everyone should be free to choose, but you can do that over time, right? Yeah. Hey, so we care about the these kids first, and we care about these kids next, and that allows you to sort of phase it in in a meaningful way to get to universal choice. The second thing is universal access. It shouldn't just be about allowing a family to choose at one school or another school. How about those families that need tutoring and, and supplemental services? You should allow multiple options, but you can do that over time. Yeah. And you can set the guardrails up for new vendors in a certain way. And then the third thing, which I think is the most important, is you need to have universal fund, universal uh, funding, meaning that if a child wants a choice, then they don't ever have to worry about it not being there. And this is a big deal. So as you look at appropriations, we actually think it's better to do these bills as part of a school funding formula model. But if you're looking at appropriations, then that appropriation needs to grow as the program grows. Yeah. So put an escalator in it, for example. So if you, and this is a way you can control fiscal costs. Let's say you want to start off with some number and you say, well, that grows every year 25% if we reach a certain cap. You can do this in a logical, smart, easy way that will grow the program to universal eligibility, access, and funding. Well, and and so that it, the reality is that's what Arkansas actually implemented their program similar to that. Did they not, Robert? Where it just phased it in, started out with certain groups that were eligible for certain aspects of the program, and it ultimately built into that. And they maybe got some some uh, idea or the idea to do that based on, honestly, some mistakes possibly made in, in Arizona's implementation, right, that, that caused some, some budgetary Correct. problems. It just took off a little bit more than they could handle too soon. Too rapidly, really. So. Well, I think what they learned. I think what they learned from Arizona and other states were were implementing these programs. It's brand new, and you and so as you learn how to implement them, implementing them over time in a phased in way gives you a chance to learn uh, how you do it. And so I think rather than the budgetary conversation in Arizona, uh, again, we know that those kids are spending far less in the ESA program than typically than they are in traditional schools. Um, but what we what we're learning is okay. These programs take a long 
long time to implement. Governments are not used to implementing these programs very well, right? Uh, although they've been doing Medicaid expansion for years, right? Right. So, you know, as what we're learning is, is as these programs get implemented by departments of education, Department of Treasury, it, it makes some sense to phase it in so they can make the lessons and learn them and yeah. grow it responsibly and logically. Yeah. I mean, that's, that makes sense. We're, we're experiencing the same here with our efforts to eliminate the income tax that uh, it just seems like there's a, a greater appetite to f- sort of phase that in uh, rather than there it is just take it all out at one time. There's some concerns uh, about that, So, but we're still working on it. To those who say this is a common objection, I know you hear this, this all the time, in, in the public-to-private scenario where uh, someone, a student, would apply for an ESA and uh, that ESA would uh, be designated to um, th- to take the state funds that are that are associated with their education, going to the public school that they're assigned to. They would use those funds in the form of a voucher, if you will, to offset either uh, some or all of the cost of tuition to a private school. Um, and there's some that just object to that. Oh, you got public money going to a private entity. How do you respond to that? Well, twofold. Um, as you know, K-12 education, public education is funded from three buckets, state, federal, and local money, yep. right? Um, if In any ESA or choice program, no local money is ever taken. So any child who takes an ESA and they take the state funding with them leaves the local funding in the local school district. Correct. Right. So there's, it's actually an increase for the local schools, right? And, and they don't take their federal money. So on one hand, we know from mountains of evidence that, that school choice is not negatively impacted public school budgets, right? The, the second thing I would say is we have tons of evidence where public funds go to private institutions. For example, Pell Grants, right? Pell Grants are a huge program that we run from the federal government. And guess what? The GI Bill is another one, right? The GI Bill was a federal program that allowed people coming back from service to attend whatever school they worked. And a lot of them chose a seminary. Yeah, And it was considered one of the best programs ever. We have tons. You, you can make the argument, um, we have Medicaid, and we say parents should be able to free to choose the right hospital. They choose religious hospitals, right? There's all sorts of freedom in the use of these programs, right, as long as they're guardrails. And so I think we have plenty of examples in our society of where we have said we believe it's the right thing to do in the public interest to fund this, in this case education, and we just don't really care where they go so long as they're getting education. And, and Robert, haven't we already had a case? Did it not go to the Supreme Court that uh, concerns uh, uh, education choice where the funds were used uh, f- for tuition at a parochial school, right? We had – Correct. How did that go? This is settled – this is settled federal law. Okay. It started in 1995 with the Cleveland Zellman v. Harris case and ended last year with the Carson v. Macon case, right? Okay. And the answer on federal constitutional grounds is it is constitutional to give a family funds to attend a public funds to attend a non-public school. Okay. It's just we, constitutional we, straight up. We've heard that it, from members of our legislature, that our lawmakers, we've there are a handful that have suggested that that uh, as an objection. But I want to make this point and, and get your take on this. I've said this on the program before, just thinking out loud. If all the private schools in the state of Mississippi suddenly just shut down and all of the students at that point enrolled in the public school to which they are um, required to attend based on their address. They're tethered to that school, essentially, based on their physical, geographic address. That would cause 
a huge financial problem for our state because it to uh, to a degree you could argue that those families that are sending their kids to private schools are essentially subsidizing the public schools because they're still paying their local taxes and the schools are still getting their federal share even though they're not educating their kids they're not having to provide those services we would overwhelm our public schools to the fact where we'd have to come up with a bunch of money uh, and in fact, a lot more than any ESA program would ever cost. Right. Right. So that, that's the reality because that's the, the public schools tend to get three sources of funding. And so every child who leaves, leaves all that local money aside and leaves all that federal money there. And so again, though, but on a more philosophical basis, I think we as a state and we as a society should care about kids getting educated, not where they're getting educated. And I think the challenge is that our friends in the traditional public school system say you should only be educated here. And our argument is that kids should just get educated. And if it's with you, that's great, so long as it's good and we can prove that it's good. right? And so I think that's where school choice and, and choice programs have been able to show it's benefiting families, it's benefiting public schools, it's not harming budgets, and it's certainly helping with civic outcomes. I don't know if you know this, but kids who in uh, choice programs are more tolerant than their peers. Yeah, ab- absolutely. They, they get more engaged in civic activities, right? They vote more. They're they're more involved in their neighborhoods. It's really interesting. Well, we appreciate uh, your efforts on uh, uh, education choice across our country. And uh, for helping us here in the state of Mississippi, we're going to keep working on this, and we're, we're hoping we can make some progress on, on uh, this matter, um, hopefully in this session. Thanks for joining us, Robert. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Robert Enlow, President and CEO of Ed Joyce. We're coming right back in the Element Wealth Studio. Everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbons on Super Talk Mississippi. Extraordinary talent of Phil Collins there. Hey, unbelievable, man. So on the ceasefire text line, enjoy the discussion. Uh, by the way, if you guys don't know it, uh, Robert Enlow, he's an extremely prominent figure in uh, on the issue of school choice in the country. He's a national figure, consults with with states and others, and also works closely with uh, state or local uh, school choice advocacy groups, such as uh, Empower Mississippi here in the state of Mississippi. Uh, He knows this subject arguably better than anyone else in the country. Uh, Has been involved in virtually all school choice programs created in other states, and he's absolutely right. Um, I guess you could sort of describe it as the walls closing in on the state of Mississippi that virtually every state that borders ours is uh, implementing school choice programs. Kind of the remaining one at this point, Alabama. 
Uh, but by all accounts, they're on the cusp of getting something done in the state of Alabama. On the ceasefire text line, let's see Dave in Monticello. Yeah, he says he's getting out of his car. He won't be able to hear uh, the discussion of what he texted us about it. And he just said, he's talking about this issue of it's really not school choice if you have to put some sort of capacity guardrails on like a public-to-public option, for example. And you can also make that same argument with respect to the public-to-private school choice option. I wouldn't support, and I've never seen any program, there, there are none of which I'm aware, in, uh, in the country that mandate that a private school accept an applicant who has received an ESA, an education savings account, a voucher, if you will, just because they received it. They got approved by the state for an ESA. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't dictate by law to a private school, any private school, you've got to accept the, the student because they have an ESA. There's, there are no laws in the country that I'm aware of, uh, Rhino, in, in any school choice programs that absolutely require or, or um, put any sort of imposition on the, the private school entity uh, with respect to their admissions process. They still administer that just like they always do, and I, I wouldn't support anything less than that. I don't want the government saying, hey, look, we're giving this public school student an ESA. you got to take them. you got to accept them if they apply. No, I, don't, I didn't, uh, wouldn't support that. I know of no school choice advocates that do, as a matter of fact. So I wanted to dispel that with respect to the... Um, uh, the capacity thing, I mean, what else do you do? So the hope is, okay, uh, we're seeing a, a, an, an exit, if you will, a, 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 a transfer, a large number of students seeking to transfer from a poor-performing school to a nearby high-performing school. we got to up our game here. That's the hope. The Study after study has shown, and in practice, the vast, overwhelming majority of parents and students don't want to leave the school they're in. They don't. In fact, it's often traumatic when you think about it. Usually when there is a situation, let's say a student's looking to transfer from a public school to a charter school. We've got, what, nine, I think, in the state. There's something going on typically with respect to that individual student. It could be a bullying situation. That comes up a lot. Or it's just not a setting in which they thrive academically. Uh, So they really don't want to transfer. They want to stay, and it's usually close by, you know, the the, um, transportation and just the just the hassle. A lot of parents work. Both parents do if they've got both parents. It's more convenient uh, to, to go to the school that you're assigned to. but So you wouldn't see this huge mass exodus. That hasn't happened in the past. I, I can't accurately 100% predict what would happen in Mississippi if we had this. I can only, I can only um, uh, convey what's happened in other states. That's, that's not been the case. has been like, look, every student in this school left and went to the one you know a few miles away. That's never happened. Not in Florida, where they have uh, universal school choice. Not in in um, Arizona. Not in Iowa. That's never happened. But you have to start somewhere, as they say. And if it and so, if that were to be the case, and capacity became a problem, well, then you have to build more school. 
But it's the same thing as if, what I suggested earlier, if all the private schools in the area suddenly shut down and all the students sought to enroll in the public schools, they would overwhelm them. They couldn't handle it. So schools and the capacity of schools is really all based on their expectation of attendance. If they expected that the private schools in their area, which are mature and seasoned now, remember that really started sprouting up, Rhino, during the busing era of the 60s. That's really what drove the creation of private schools in much of the country, as much as anything. Now, there's always been kind of a a subset of private schools that has existed. Um, You would consider them more elite. Extremely expensive. That just offered what was considered a, a, a different, superior education, but really only available to the most affluent in society. That's completely different than what happened in the 60s. I was a kid. I remember it with the busing, and then all of a sudden, man, private schools were popping up all over the place in, in busing and integration. It just That's just a fact back in that era, back in that time period. I know there are folks out there listening to me. They remember this as well, and those just took hold. Now, some of them honestly failed financially. It was a little too much. And and a lot of people said, you know what? Uh, the public schools really ain't that bad, and I can't afford this private school. and going back to public school where it's free. But many did survive. But I think it's fair to say that was kind of the inflection point. That was the pivotal part of our history that really gave rise to the entire private school, um, I guess, industry. Some may argue with that, but just my eyeball observation over the last 50 years that's what it appears to me uh, to be but I, I don't I don't want to again dictate to the private school how they admit students just because they have an ESA you shouldn't be compelled to take them they still are at your discretion based on your admissions policies and in fact because they're a private entity as far as I'm concerned they can take or reject whoever the heck they want that's the way it ought to work I don't care how they're paying who's paying or anything else um, that might enter into that decision. So I, I think it's worth just clarifying some of those issues. There, there are others who think that, okay, we're just going to pay the full cost of tuition for a, a, a child that receives a scholarship and transfers from a public school to a private school. That's false. It's never been suggested. That's not the way school choice has been implemented anywhere in the country. It's always been just the state portion allocated to the student, follows the student to their option, whatever their education setting that they choose. If that's less than private school tuition, they're responsible for the difference. That's uh, just the way it works. So I just, just want to clarify some of those things. Um, and I apologize that Dave unfortunately wasn't here, but uh, probably go back and, and listen to it. Most of the school transfers are where the parent works for another school district, says Mose. Yeah, and so as well, Mose, in the state of Mississippi, if uh, you, uh, as a student, a K-12 student, you can, um, w- without uh, like hardly any hassle whatsoever, you, you can enroll in the school where a parent or caretaker is employed, even though that may mean um, you're, you're traveling outside of your district to which you were assigned. That's been in case uh, in place for quite some time. Appreciate that. How does busing work with voucher system? There's no transportation involved. Again, let me let me back up. You can be whatever you want. I mean, if the legislature were to 
to draft a bill that got passed that says, yeah, we're going to come up with some way to uh, supply some sort of transportation when you're in a public-to-public transfer. I don't think you'd ever see that in a public-to-private. That wouldn't make sense. In general, however, on the ceasefire tax line, that is not the case. Transportation, you're on your own. It's totally separate. In general, that's how it works. And again, to hell with my tax dollars going to private schools. Like the parents of the students choosing a different school don't pay taxes as well? Right. That's the point. That's what's missing. Thank you, Rhino. So the idea is the money that is earmarked for a student, which is based on your paying income taxes, that's, that's the way it's allocated. It simply stays with you, and it follows the child. It's not like you're paying extra for that child. Now, if you're, if you're paying local taxes, remember, remember, your local taxes stay with the school. So that's completely um, inaccurate. We're only talking about the state portion. That means state income taxes, state um, sales taxes. Uh, that's it. So it's just that's what funds the amount that stays, just like it funds all the other aspects of the, of the general fund of uh, general fund budget at the state level, of which slightly more than half goes to education. Ah, yeah, Stone in Love, they played that. It was awesome Friday night. Coming right back, final segment. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show! On Super Talk Mississippi. Middays, that's from the all-hit request line from our good friend Gary in the Berg, Frankie and the Knockouts. Really good tune. Shaq Bully and Biloxi said, John Kirby has a perpetual cat going into a room full of rocking chairs. <laughs> Look on his face. He's still better than KJP, though. Well, that, that blinking and looking down, wait, that's like some sort of condition, I think, that means I really don't know what the hell I'm doing. Isn't that one of those body English things? <laughs> yeah, it's in over my head itis. Yeah, gotcha. Larry says, Dick's Sporting Goods, we were talking about how the Treasury um, spokesperson is uh, one of the administrators, is up on the Hill today testifying about spying on Americans' uh, banking transactions, looking for certain keywords like MAGA and Donald Trump and Dick's Sporting Goods says the sister company's Field and Stream store, which does sell gun and ammo. So they have both sides. Okay, maybe that's it. Uh, I think it's insanity. I hope they put Bass Pro on there. I'll be toast. You know when the Democrats talk about it's the end of democracy, 
That kind of crap is the end of democracy. When your government is spying on your financial transactions and trying to trying to uh, piece some sort of cobble some sort of theory together that oh my gosh they buy from Dick Sporting Goods they're terrorists and stuff like that. It's the it's uh, the Catholic parents right the pro life folks that were being deemed terrorists by our own Department of Justice. We're the legitimate terrorists that oh no that's that's totally justified. They're just ex- uh, their freedom of expression. And speech, you know. So you've got the Treasury looking into your bank accounts to see if you're a terrorist. You got the DOJ saying you're a terrorist if you speak up at a school board meeting. You've got the IRS denying nonprofit status yeah. to conservative organizations. Oh, and you had the Obama administration spying on and asking other countries to spy on the Trump campaign. That's absolutely true. And Adam Schiff lied. But no, no, it's the Republicans that are the end of democracy. Mm. Sickening. Question, Jeff from Loosedale. It's a good one. Uh, do you think we have a chance to turn our country around, or is it too late? Also, if we can turn it around, how do we do that? Thanks, Jeff from Loosedale. So I'll tell you, Jeff, I absolutely do. I, I'm 100% optimistic, and I believe uh, that our best days are ahead. Now, people may say, you're crazy, Gerard. No, I'm not. I think you have to believe in your heart, in your mind, what you want to occur. You have to envision it. You have to believe in it. Otherwise, it doesn't. You have no chance. If you just take the defeatist attitude, it's over, it's done, just pack up and go. And, you know, my litmus test for that always is, are you prepared to go down to the maternity ward of the local hospital and say, you know that child coming in the world? You made a mistake there. It's over. The worst is is upon us. We have no chance. That's the litmus test for it. Now, how do we get there? We got to do better, Jeff. It's selling the virtues of of freedom and free markets and free enterprise and consistent application of the rule of law and restore um, uh, meritocracy and quit apologizing for. Um, success and the pursuit of excellence and being rewarded for doing so, we got to stop that, man. And and we got to do better at the messaging. My fear, my concern is that we're not getting this down to the younger, this message down effectively to the younger folks in our society. That we're we're awash with leftists that are that are in our schools at all levels, and they're brainwashing and propagandizing and indoctrinating our kids. And this is why, for what it's worth, and I'm just one little guy with one little voice, but man, every time I get asked to address young people, I clear the boards for that. There's nothing that's a higher priority. And the reason I, that I say that is yesterday, Rhino, I had the, um, the privilege, the pleasure of uh, doing a Zoom call with about 60 high school kids from across the state as part of the Secretary of State's Student Ambassadors uh, program. My um, young daughter actually runs that program. That's what she does for the Secretary of State. Man, I had a blast just sharing the story and talking about the the uh, the, the greatness of this state and of this country and of free markets and of capitalism. And I told my business and entrepreneurial story. You can't believe the great questions I got from them and I found out this morning I had breakfast at a breakfast meeting and one of the parents I didn't even know that his child was on the call says my my son was inspired 
by your talk and wants to become a billionaire. Man, that's fantastic. I love hearing that. Not not this crap, well, I just don't want to work and want the government to take care of me. When I hear someone say, a young high school student, I aspire to be a billionaire and I'm going to serve society to get there. Gosh, we got we that's the message we need and we got to keep at it. Jeff, great question. We'll continue this tomorrow. We thank you so much for joining us today. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. A Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.